0: Please pronounce your name correctly for me.
1: Well, actually, I'm not sure if I can. The way my family pronounces it is Sas, but being in Eastern Europe, the way it probably should be pronounced is Shush. But since there's nobody else with my last name, as we just kind of discussed, since my father
0: kind of made it up. We discussed off the record, so why don't you put that on the record?
1: So the the family name was anglicized uh, when they moved to the US four generations ago or so, four or five, to Saus, and my father had, had tried to figure out the proper spelling of it, uh, and he came up with the spelling that I used, that I was born with, which is S-Z-O-S-Z, with an umlaut over the vowel, and it probably should be Saus, with an A in the middle, still with the umlaut, which would mean Saxon, or German in Hungarian, which is the, the country that my family emigrated from, and my name with this spelling means what the hell in Hungarian. <laughs> so um, I think there's about seven sauces in the world, and I'm related to all of them, maybe six. So I think we can just pronounce it however uh, we feel like. So my family, uh, being from the Northeast, says
0: Sas. Something I always wonder about people is sort of how they're made as far as creative people. So like, were your parents creative? Was it some schooling? Like what led you down the path of a creative field?
1: Yeah, very much. Uh, my parents met in art school as undergraduates. They they both went to Bowling Green. They were both from Ohio.
0: I taught there.
1: All right. Yeah. BGSU.
0: Yeah. Middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah,
1: a half an hour from Toledo, and that's the great uh, uh, the great urban center. My father went out to Cranbrook, and then kind of right out of graduate school, he got a job teaching at Rhode Island School of Design, and he taught there for about 52 years. So I grew up with him as an art professor, as a practicing artist, and he kind of – he had a little bit of a inverted path, Uh, With the arts in that, like, in the 60s, or or actually before that, I guess it's the 60s. Yeah. um, When he was finishing graduate school, he was doing that very much that kind of like big, chunky 60s bronze casting stuff, pretty abstract. And then he got more and more figurative and more and more decorative as he got older and older. And he ended up kind of specializing in uh, medallions and monuments and doing a lot of kind of you know, there's a certain kind of liberty leading the people theme in the, in the later work. But he was spectacularly talented. He was a guy that could just kind of pick up anything with his hands and do it.
0: My father's the same way. It drives me freaking nuts. Yeah. Uh,
1: and, he, and he was very bright. And that was kind of so I, uh, like, pretty early on in high school, I pretty much knew I was going to go to RISD. They used to. I don't know if they still do, uh, but they had a great program where faculty dependents went free. So as long as you could get in, everything was paid for tuition-wise.
0: Oh, that's um, so cushy. I'm sure. Which
1: so was jealous. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was so good. I originally I, I meant to go into sculpture when I got there, and I was I was a bit of a lazy student, and then like I didn't really look around and assess my options very well. I intended to go into sculpture, and then I kind of went to the sculpture department. I mean, the the sculpture department at RISD is very good, but it's not one of the university's strengths, really. Like, it's more of a design school. And so I kind of went into the sculpture department, and I was like, these guys don't actually know how to make anything. You know, because they were doing this kind of much more conceptual stuff. And then I went into the design department, and I saw these guys that could basically just, like, you know, at the end of a design education, you could do everything from build a motorcycle to frame a house. Um, I was like, Oh, all right. Uh, I like to make stuff that does stuff. Uh, so I ended up as a design undergrad and a furniture maker and uh, pretty much a, and it, well, one of the really nice things is that you could take fifth year. So it took fifth year because it was free because it was all paid for.
0: Still very envious.
1: Yeah, no, that, that was really, it um, was really a very nice thing. And it's, RISD is a great education, apart from everything else, like the insane expense that it currently is and kind of like, it's starting to price itself out of the best students, I think. You know, like you need to be of a certain wealth level to attend RISD, really. They don't do much in the way of scholarships because none of their graduates make money to give back, (laughs) you know? artists, artists are not the best alumni to, to crowdsource from or fundraise from. But when I went there, it was still pretty reasonable. And, you know, you had and one of the great things about the school is that everybody that's in there with you is really talented and everybody kind of, you know, you're expected to perform at a certain level. So you just do like you ask kids to do things and they'll do it. Right about the same time I was graduating from uh, the fifth year of ID, I decided that I'd not gone to art school to be a furniture maker, especially kind of in New England, where there's like two furniture makers on every block.
0: <gasps>
1: I'm so shocked. I started, uh, uh, so I, I looked around and started looking for sculptors that I could work for. I ended up working for a glass caster because I could, I could make molds uh, and kind of do all of the other things that he needed in the studio. And I had no kind of glass experience or anything like that. But I liked glass. Like gla- glass can be a very addictive material. You know, it does a lot of stuff. It's very pretty. Uh, it's got a lot of kind of natural virtues as a material, but it's also like really uncomfortable and difficult. Like if it doesn't want to do something, it just breaks, you know. It's, it's very uncooperative. So there's a certain amount of challenge as well. So people that like respond to a challenge, it's got kind of a high risk reward thing. And you see this with students all the time. There's like, you bring them into glass blowing, which is like, it's a very physically difficult thing to do. And uh, there's some of them who think this is great. I'm failing all the time. This is really hard. I'm going to come in here and just do it all the time. And that's about a third of the class. And the rest of them, like, make it through the semester and never come back. <laughs> um, it's hot. It's uncomfortable. And there's just there's just a lot of failure. So there's a certain masochism that kind of predominates among the people that are, and perfectionism. Anyway, I ended up getting traded from different glass people because I, you know, I kind of had good hand skills and could, you know, follow directions independently. And I started liking glass more and more. But the thing that I really noticed that I really liked is that glass was a very small kind of insular community and everybody got to travel a lot um you know there were only so many glass people but there were all these glass schools around the country so people would be shooting around the country to go to different programs and uh it seemed relatively easy to get to travel and that was a huge draw for me like that was the thing i really like especially growing up in Rhode Island Rhode Island is apart from being the smallest state a place where nobody leaves and nobody comes to typically like Most of my high school class still lives in the in the town I grew up in.
0: I have to admit, I don't believe I've ever been to Rhode Island.
1: Mm -hmm. You may have passed through and not noticed (laughs) between Connecticut
0: and. I believe I have flown over, but I don't believe I have even passed through because I've been to Maine, so I've been near it. It's 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 actually a pretty interesting place.
1: It's like it's got a lot of kind of character, but it is very much kind of a social island. In the U.S., I mean, it's kind of like if you mix the Sopranos and the Kennedy Compound—that's
0: Rhode Island a little bit. That is pretty much exactly what I probably would have pictured. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting that that concern about like staying in the same place and like you know the people you went to school with are still there, like to a certain extent. And I apologize to if there's any person I went to school with that's listening to this, but like I pity those people that never left their hometowns. Like I'm always like. That's really sad. I mean, and don't get me wrong, most of them don't travel and don't even get out very much either. So, I mean, there are a few I can think of that did travel. But, but like, I I find the idea of, like, being born, raised, and dying in the same place a very unfortunate uh, way to have lived life. Like, I'm all about, like, my life being full of stories. (laughs) Like, I love Mm -hmm. a a story-filled life. And so, like... I wonder if that's a creative thing. Yeah, I guess that's the, because like you also seem to have the same perspective on that. Yeah. When I think about the arts,
1: the thing that I probably enjoy most about it and the reason that I like. Well, I mean, I'm thoroughly embedded and committed at this point, so I can't really say like the one reason that kids me here because there's no way I'm going anywhere else it's a great tool for getting to know yourself and getting to know your position in the world. And if you stay in the same place uh, and don't mix with other perspectives on the human experience, you really end up not knowing who you are or what's going on around you or kind of understanding the relationships that are, that are shaping your life. And also just like, it's no fucking fun. <laughs> the first time i went west of the mississippi i had a college roommate that was from ogden utah and we went out to the fucking utah desert which is basically mars <laughs> and uh, i couldn't believe i was in the same country i was like this is the us we're still in the same place like i know rain for seven months out of the year and uh, and uh, and gray slush and you know people cursing at you uh, that's pretty much you know, the Northeast, like between Boston and New
0: York. No, U- Utah, they'll pull a gun on you.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and it was just kind of shocking to me. And uh,
0: Sorry, Utah. I mean that in the politest way.
1: No, I, I, I really like Utah. I don't even mind the Mormons that much. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are a few things that. I dated
0: a Mormon once. Mm,
1: yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, uh, in general, they tend to be decent people. And, uh, you know, there are a few things that are problematic and we don't need to get into those on an art podcast, but, uh, yeah, Utah is just, it's, it's an incredible place. It really is north to south. Most of the West is, it's really, it's still one of my favorite places, uh, in the world to go to.
0: Well, I mean, and just to be clear, so like you live, you technically live, so like your permanent residence right now is Seattle, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, uh, and we've been there for
1: about five years, five and a half years. Uh, my wife went to the University of Washington for graduate school. We moved up there from California. It was kind of an on and off Bay Area resident for 12 years or so. And I really, really like the San Francisco Bay. It's, um, it's a physically beautiful place, and it's also really culturally broad it's gotten less so i think since it since i've moved there there's a certain uniformity of tech bro that's kind of displaced some of the great things in uh, in san francisco in particular kind of when when i first got there it was still on the tail end of being a place where you could be an ordinary like you know you didn't need to have an enormous bank account to live there so you still had aging hippies you still had like the the last geriatric remains of the Beat generation, and uh, you still had anarchists in Berkeley, and you had, you know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And now, in San Francisco, either you're rich or you're poor. And it was, I was just back there recently for a sculpture installation, and it was really shocking how great the divide has become, especially in the downtown area. I mean, there's always been, there's this area called the Tenderloin, it's kind of the last of the flop houses that are not on Mission Street, and is always a kind of an eye-opening place
0: to visit. I'm laughing because I actually lived in the Tenderloin.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, well, the Tenderloin has now grown by about five blocks in every direction, and its population with it. Uh, so you can kind of imagine. I mean, it was kind of a localized thing. Now it's like it's a significant chunk of the city is in that kind of dire strait. And it's mixed in with all these giant new high-rise apartment buildings with like a security desk at the bottom where people drive their Maseratis into the basement garage. And there's this real, like, outside of Hong Kong, I haven't seen that much of a wealth disconnect, just living right next to each other. Yeah, in Hong Kong, you see everything everywhere, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so yeah, we kind of got off on a tangent a little bit about social economic situation in san francisco but uh. well
0: but i i lived in san francisco in the tenderloin i went to the san francisco art institute and and while i was there like i had it was the most ridiculous house i think of ever building i've ever lived in first of all i had a crack whore on my front step that like dealt crack she kept it in her cheek and she would like cough and like hand you the crack it was very weird but then but there was a, a gate a barred door that you entered that door and then you had to close the first door before you were allowed to enter and unlock the second gated iron door. And then you went into a courtyard where there were all the apartments and all the apartments had bars on their windows on this interior courtyard, and then above us on the second floor was barbed wire all around the top of it, so that people also couldn't come from the roof area down into. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just very sketchy, like so yeah. sketchy.
1: Very reasonable precautions for that neighborhood, entirely <laughs> warranted. Yeah, I, I lived in West Oakland for for quite a while. It was it was the same thing. Like you had to worry about people cutting their way in through the through the roof.
0: It was fun. It was a nice experience. I have no regrets. Mm-hmm. I had a very loud neighbor, though, but that was, that was about it. I
1: kind of feel like, in certain ways, San Francisco is often a barometer for um, the state of the nation, or at least a part of the nation. That current wealth divide is really kind of indicative. And it's just, it's really in your face in, in that part. There's a lot of parts of the country where you can kind of ignore it. You know, the poverty is segregated enough or. You know, suppressed enough that uh, it's not right in front of you. And they don't do any of that in San Francisco. Uh, it's all very, you know, live and let live, but you really get to see kind of the reality of people that have absolutely nothing living right next to people that have way more money than they could ever figure out what to do as in a productive manner, uh, which, you know, naturally brings us to art
0: well oddly enough I was going to equate that to the arts because there is that same divide there's like there used to be like we could almost call it like an artistic middle class where like you could just make a living at being an artist and that's perfectly fine but it seems like it's more blue chip you know NEA grants like big, big stuff and then there's like the small regional kind of $500 grants and you know local artists that sell trinkets on the boardwalk, kind of thing, and at farmers markets, and the, that same sense of like economic divide and like diminishing of the middle class is oddly enough also sort of manifesting itself in the arts itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, the arts are one of those kind of canary in the coal mine things about culture. There's an enormous amount of vulnerability among artists uh, financially, so whenever there's kind of a dip or bumps in the road, or just like a swing away from supporting the values of of thinking before you act, it hits the arts pretty hard. Uh, And I think right now, you know, either you get paid a lot to make art, or you pay to make art. There's very few, I, I feel really lucky to be somewhere kind of in the middle, where Even though there's no job security, like I don't know where next year's funding is going to come from, I've been making enough money for my lifestyle. And a big part of that has also been like figuring out how to have a lifestyle that doesn't require a lot of money. And that's actually been great. Like it's been really good to like realize that a lot of things people pay a lot of money
0: for really don't make your life any better at all. Agreed. Yeah. My, yeah. my biggest one is like cars. Like I am mm-hmm. an American. I love a car, but fuck, I've lived without a car for a couple of years now and it has saved me so much hassle, money grief concerns like I don't have to do oil changes I don't have to worry about insurance for it I don't worry have to worry about potentially like depending on where you live paying for parking and all this kind of crap like there's a certain amount of freedom that I really enjoy not having a lot of those extra things on the mm-hmm. other hand I do miss a car because <laughs> mm-hmm. I love going to the hardware store and just buying whatever I want and throwing it in the back of the car <laughs> it's yeah. a little different when I have to carry it home on a bus and if you're, you know, still
1: working in a discipline that's pretty material intensive uh, and tool intensive, it's you know, like I don't think I could live in America without my pickup truck. I mean, that is a very American thing, I and mean, and a big part of that is that there's there's just no infrastructure to do it any other way in a lot of places in America. Very deliberately, there's
0: no infrastructure to do. It. <laughs> Again, back to the difference between the cultural divides, but yes
1: yeah and so I mean I we get by with a lot less money than um a lot of other people seem to require for their life
0: but if I'm understanding correctly now you and your wife are both glass artists who the your wife is Anna who was previously on the podcast, and the, the you all are both teachers also correct
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah um. Well, but there's a certain freedom that comes with that also because like, and this is me, this is me telling like the inside baseball things about why you should become a teacher because you get the opportunity to use the school's resources. So like you don't have to, like in your mm-hmm. case, you're a glass artist, you don't have to make your own hot shop at, uh, in your own space. You could just go use the school stuff and look, they've got all yeah. the equipment red- ready for you and you don't have to invest in any of this. And that is a magnificent thing. I mean, I use the school's resources whenever possible when I'm teaching. Or in your case, since you seem to be doing a lot of like visiting artists and visiting teacher type things, you can almost choose a school that has the resources that you want and be like, oh, I mm-hmm. want to go teach for you because you have this great resource that I can't afford.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I actually think like the for me, the that's, that's certainly true. And, um, the, the physically, the really nice thing that I find about schools is that it's not any particular shop. It's all of the shops in one place. So I can go from wood to the metal shop to ceramics to make molds and then back to the glass studio with everything that I've built. But I think the greatest resource in universities for me is the people and just being. In an environment where everybody's kind of thinking about art, everybody's kind of talking about art, you're seeing new stuff, you know, there's kind of this great pastoral thing of the artist at home in the studio working away happily. I do not have great success with that. I tend to get bored and, you know, put it down and go for a walk, find myself making coffee four times a day as a, as a procrastination strategy. And being around kind of an active discourse is something that really helps me to kind of stay active and make new things as an artist. Left myself in my own cave, uh, I find it much harder to move ideas forward and to, to kind of come up with new stuff. It's much easier to be just comfortable. Uh, I need a certain amount of discomfort uh, in order to, to keep working.
0: Well, I mean, even in your in your work, like, I've you know, I saw words like experimental and sort of pushing the boundaries of things and things like this. And like a lot of being uh, in an academic setting, at least for me, is always I'm always introduced to something like, you know, there will be some professor over here that's working in some specialized thing. And I'm like, oh, wait, I could use that in my thing. Like, I wonder how that would interact with this material that I'm playing with. And so, like. A lot of times just the, the, the sheer volume of people that have so many different interests at a university is suddenly like, oh, wait, we could do a whole like research paper and a whole like performative thing based around like this French Renaissance, whatever thing you're researching. And then this new technological material from the science department and we can create this amazing combination of things that would never happen had we all not been at that university. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: I'm happiest and kind of most excited when things are going wrong. Failure is, is kind of my default state. I mean, it's a great way to kind of learn things. Whenever you're failing at something, you're doing something you don't know how to do and it's teaching you how to do it better. But I also kind of just like, I like a little bit of chaos and there's a little bit of kind of like I don't know, trauma nurse in me or something that gets kind of excited when when things are going off the rails. And it's also usually when like the most unexpected things happen, which are the things that I'm always kind of looking for. I don't know if it's a... And and universities are a great place to do that. Like that's something that they love to kind of just finance this kind of open... Or they don't love it, but they're willing to kind of finance that kind of open experimentation where if you have to pay for it yourself, you really can't afford to just like toss stuff around. But it is, you know, I mean, R and D is always kind of the most valuable learning experience. This is what Bell labs did. This is what, you know, all of those great technology innovators that used to invest in large research facilities uh, in the fifties and sixties, That kind of, you know, made American manufacturing what it was before we gave it away because it was cheaper. Um, that's what they were doing. You know, they were just like, you're smart. Come over here and just figure something out. We'll, we'll make money off it later. Um, and there are a few industries that still do that. And kind of one of the really nice things for us has been that, that corning glass is one of those industries. Um, so there's still a glass lab that uh, is just engaging in pure research and getting very well funded uh and it's really it's really an interesting thing i've been very lucky to get the chance to go there and uh talk to those guys it's it's just wonderful yeah it, uh, like i think art and science are very similar anyway uh you know they're kind of both ways of understanding the world through asking questions and uh, experimenting and so they tend to be very kind of like even though they think in very different ways, it's, it's kind of a very simpatico approach to things. Like, it's, curiosity is the base for everything. Having taught for a while, uh, and teaching is fucking terrifying. Holy shit. Getting stared at by a room full of 20-year-olds who simply don't respond to anything. It's like, you know, it's, it, it's like doing comedy and dying.
0: It's fascinating. I've had this conversation with another friend of mine who was a slightly older teacher than me. So she, she taught maybe like five or 10 years longer than me. And she used to say like... The role of the teacher is to to impart knowledge. like so like you 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 take the knowledge that's in your brain and you you impart it to them. And I, and I kept like debating with her. I'm like, well, there's a fine line on that. Like yes, I give like fifty percent that. Absolutely. It is that they're, they're trying to learn from you from your experiences. But part of your role is not only to keep them entertained slash interested in the topic, but also you have to keep yourself interested in the topic because Mm -hmm. i've noticed like when i teach the same course over and over and over semester after semester i'm just sort of like okay yeah this lecture again okay fine and i'm uninterested you know Mm -hmm. so like as a student i always remember the teachers who were passionate and expressive and emotive about their interest in their thing instead of just like serving up facts as far more interesting and more fun. And so like to me teaching is part performative art and like you cuz you're trying to engage the viewer in the, in whatever's fascinating you. But also you have to love what you're doing. You have to be fascinating. So like I I mix I try these days to mix it up. Like I I almost never do the same lecture twice. <laughs> like I just mm-hmm. because I have to have fun with it because if I'm not f- having fun and enjoying it, there, I have, should have no expectations that my students will. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, that, that thing about the university being a challenging place that helps you grow, I kind of like every time I get a lecture, I, I want it to be better and more informed. So there's kind of this incremental thing. But the big challenge for me is that, you know, kind of in the more physical arts uh, and glass tends to be a little bit physical one one of the other things about glass is there's so many different ways to do things with it that you certainly can't teach all of them. So getting the students to a place where they actually want to go out and experiment on their own and do some of their own learning is really kind of this tipping point like if you can get them interested enough that they start practicing on their own to become physically better and then exploring on their own to find new ways of making things that's really. And then on a very selfish level, it becomes really interesting because you've basically got like this crew of people doing experiments and finding things out and then reporting back to you with the results, which is really wonderful. Like, like it's, um, it's this chance to really kind of refine and explore and have all of these minions just kind of doing their own little, little uh, investigative espionage work into, into the material.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, like back to your like failing as a as a sort of a, a general studio technique. Like I'm all for that. Like I, generally, like I, literally I'm sitting here while we're talking and I've got a piece on the other side of the room that I've been like working on. And I'm like, it's just not working yet. And I just suddenly realized this morning that I was just like, you know, what's wrong with it is I'm not willing to fail hard enough. Like, mm-hmm. like like, I've got to double down on the risk factor in it in order mm-hmm. to really achieve something interesting and different. I've been playing it too safe and I feel that a lot of artists do that, you know, and so there's that fine balance of like sometimes you can play it too safe, which is fine and often ends up being more decorative and pretty and, and safe. And then there's those people that take it like, and go way over the top, and of course, that can also fail miserably as well. But there's some beautiful balance of like, of, of like knowing when to pl- and how to play safe, and knowing when and how to to go way over the top.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a. I think of it as like a sentimentality check. You know, I like <laughs> my, uh, you know, am I holding on to this because it makes me feel good, uh, even though it's not. It's not. Moving at all, and uh, yeah, there's certainly I, I've certainly met a number of artists who like make phrases like "kill your babies." They're like driving focus, and it works for them, and that's you know that's great. I, I think that's also because the ones that it doesn't work for just disappear. <laughs> um, you know, if you can if you can consistently kill your babies and still be making art five years later, then you're 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 pretty much going to survive anything. But it is really important, at least for the way that I think about art, because I'm never approaching art as a way to make a living. (laughs) I think the two things are kind of diametrically opposed. Like art and money are somewhat antithetical to each other. They're two very different value systems for looking at the world. And I mean, the other thing is that art is very personal. So like my ideas about like, what's good for me in my practice. It's certainly not for everybody, but I always, you know, whenever I try to make art for money, it does not go well. You know, whenever I try to make art about politics, it goes even worse. Um, You know, I have certain things that I can do well. Failing is a big one of them. Got that one down. But kind of mixing those things, if if I'm doing something other than just focusing on the joy I get out of the experience of making it and of finding something out new, like the ways that it changes my ideas about the things that other people make, or my ideas about who I am and where I live and our human identity within the world, which you know is a very fine incremental thing, but is theoretically kind of the goal of all of this. It's kind of a philosophical identity and or a philosophical endeavor in self-identification. That's the way that I have to approach it. If I worry about money before I do something, then I would probably never do anything. Um, At least not the way that I do it.
0: I'm all for it. Yes. I'm on the same page. It's because the the problem with art is it's an arbitrary value. Like all of Mm -hmm. it. It's, you know, they say like, what's art worth? And basically the answer is always whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. That's it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's really difficult because, you know, like constantly I have conversations with people where they say like, oh, well, but okay, if you're buying this piece, you're also buying the 15 years of experience and the 10 years of schooling that I did to build up to Mm -hmm. this. So whether it took me 10 minutes or 10 months to make this piece of art, you're paying for all that history as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anybody who's not into art doesn't understand any of that. So like the whole issue of valuing art is so... Arbitrary in so many ways, and it's very difficult because like you, you want to you want to be able to make a living from it, but like the truth of it is, is that like in and of itself, it's really not like intended to do that. You know, mm-hmm. like, I think of like poets and musicians and, and you know visual artists and all these different people, like they're not doing their thing with the purpose of making money. They're doing it to express something about the human condition and you know all this kind of stuff. But we still need to live.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would go even a step further and say that the intersection of art and money is sinister. The art market is a con job, you know, and whether it's a good con job or a bad con job, like and con jobs are important because that's basically what we run our life on. See the history of religion.
0: Did I mention my father's a priest?
1: No, no, that hadn't come up. By the time you're spending money on art, money for you is not a way to pay for your kid's school or pay for bread to eat or put a roof over your head. It's a way of keeping score. And it's a way of keeping score that's kind of, it almost immediately devalues art when somebody's like, so what's that worth You know, in money? Because that's not the point of art you know, and it shouldn't be a point of art. I mean, when, when you think about, like, like, kind of, like, this. The, okay, so the, this is a bit egotistical and, and self-serving from an artistic point of view, but, like, if you think about, like, the Native Americans' ideas about land, where this is something that nobody can own, like, what do you mean you're trading me for this land? Of course not. The land, you belong to the land, not the other way around. Art should be that way. You know, that's what museums are, right? They're, they're places for art to belong to everybody, you know, I mean, not so much anymore. Okay, fine. (laughs) But that was kind of the idea, you know, and like, how do you own an idea? But yes, a mechanism has to exist to pay artists and getting your culture to the point where you can afford to have artists is kind of like the apogee of civilization. After you've got, okay, we've solved the food problem. We've solved the housing problem. We've solved the defense problem. You know, you work all the way through this. We've got roads. Ah, maybe we can start thinking about art. And it is kind of this, it's a frivolous, expensive thing that contributes nothing physical to the society. But theoretically, it's all, I mean, like, and yeah, it so is like the priesthood in certain ways um, or politicians but it also, when it works best, is one of the most important things that you can spend money on. You know, if art is kind of this physical philosophy that we're engaged in and this way of kind of figuring out what is the proper way to interact with the world around us, who are we in relation to each other, in relation to ourselves. You know, I mean, and it, I'm certainly not going to say that all art engages these great philosophical questions but i think most artists do at least personally uh, and some small part of that gets put into the art uh, and the art is i mean for me art is my primary tool for like figuring those bigger questions out and you know, i'm kind of always revising my ideas of what's the right thing to do what's you know what's moral action what's the best way to interact with people I like, like most things that I do, I would certainly never claim to be an authority on any of those issues. But if you can get to the point where you're creating a class of people that do that as a living, then you're creating this group of people that can help shape society and that can kind of help guide it. You know, maybe have you avoid some of the rather large historical pitfalls that you can fall into. It's no accident that, like, Hitler, even though he started out as an artist, like, had very strict ideas about what was proper art and what wasn't. You know, like, if it wasn't a landscape of the Rhine, like, degenerate art was a big thing with him.
0: I recently read an article in in about Ireland where they've just implemented this – I guess it's a a minimum salary for artists. So like whether they're selling or not, they it's totally irrelevant. They just receive a salary as an artist from the government. And of course, you know, the Norwegian, not Norway, but like the Scandinavian countries also offer this kind of thing as Mm -hmm. well. I think it's absolutely amazing. This sort of universal basic income for artists because the one of the I feel like one of the greatest pressures that we all have on us is being able to make a living basically mm-hmm. so like whether you know and I don't mean like make a li- make a living like selling art but like having to then do other jobs let's say to make enough money to have a whatever lifestyle we choose and then enough money and time to make our art like so like you know having the idea of a Uh, a a universal basic income, kind of a salary available for the creative industries, I think is an amazing opportunity that a lot of countries are looking into. Mm -hmm. Sadly, some of the most rich companies are not doing, but at least some countries are trying it out and hopefully they'll become a good model for the future. Yeah. I mean, I I think there are a few
1: ways you could better spend your money. And let's face it, it's not terribly expensive when you start uh, thinking about the things that, that countries spend their money on, if you took the amount of like three M1 Abrams and spread it out across the artists in America, <laughs> you would fund a significant, a number of them. And I, you know, I, I, it, it's fantastic that Ireland is doing that. And it's fantastic the way the, the Scandinavian countries, Denmark uh, and Sweden in particular have supported the arts. Germany has Allowances, while not like a direct income, you have access to the social safety net as an artist. Union. You may have access to health care. It's almost like a, a, a uh, an artist union that's sponsored by the government, but mm, kind of, you know. You pass their test, you get declared an artist, uh, and you get health care, which is very nice. In Ireland's case, it is kind of their overall image. Like, that is the thing that Ireland sells to the world. You know, it's this romantic place full of singers and dancers and, uh, you know, the visual arts is very much part of that package. So it, it I think it's a little bit easier for them. Iceland also. Yeah.
0: They recently did that whole ad campaign about being inspired by art and all this. Which, you know, is really fucking
1: civilized. It's really kind of a, a nice thing
0: obviously a pro you know support arts and support the idea of these kinds of things but quite honestly like i support the idea i'm very socialist in, in many ways like so i support the idea of like you know a universal basic income period i like the idea of flat taxes <laughs> like i'm I'm very socialized in all these kinds of things but there of course there are always pros and cons to all of those choices but anyways
1: well i mean i think also like The ideas of a universal basic income makes a lot of economic sense as well. Like In the long term, it's less expensive than having an underclass that has to show up at the emergency room to get any help. An ounce of prevention is (laughs) well worth a pound of cure.
0: Not according to the pharmaceutical companies.
1: No, no. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) They'd rather sell a pound of cure. Yeah. You don't make millions off ounces of prevention you make it by uh, by by getting people into a an inelastic economic situation which is what healthcare is like you need it now and then you're going to pay what we want yeah planning ahead is the uh, is the the great enemy
0: of the healthcare industry indeed all right I want to pivot this back to the arts. We've been talking a little too much That's like good. social medicine and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> politics. I mean, it's all fun and games, but come on, let's do a part arts podcast. So, the the thing that struck me about your work, okay, when I looked at it, you do a lot of things where you You technically you're using glass, but you're very transformative in how you do it. So like you've made it to look like yarn. You've made it to look more like a balloon, like inflated, this this kind of stuff. And specifically when it comes to like the inflated pieces, I'm wondering how you feel at this point that you seem to be known for that style like because Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a mixed blessing in the arts industry like having a style that people know you for because on the one hand people know you that's great people like being known on the other hand people expect you to continue to do that so how does Mm -hmm. that feel
1: (laughs) i mean that is a pretty accurate thing i would be much happier about it if if every inflatable that I made got sold immediately, but the, the world being what it is, it's, it's kind of sporadic. So it's not to the point where I can just like make inflatables as a sideline and use it to fund everything else, which would be kind of the ideal thing. Like, okay, fine. If you need me to make these for the rest of my life, but it's going to pay for everything. I can do that. Ending up like, you know, doing these kind of, they're, they're slightly like command performances. Okay, we we need a gallery show now with a dozen inflatables.
0: It would be very Jeff Koons at that point, though. Yes,
1: yeah, I, I like going back to the art market as a con job. We've mentioned Jeff Koons, so I, I I like I still find them interesting. I still find things to to explore in them, but they're certainly not kind of the things that really turn me on. But they're you know. They consistently get better and more finished. I learn more about them. They become more kind of fitting into their niche, which they become more decorative and and you know a bit less adventurous uh, but yeah they're nice. If you want one, let me know That was to the public out there that was to the um <laughs>
0: He's represented by three ga- two galleries, Traver Gallery and Dwayne Reed Gallery.
1: Fantastic. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Dwayne. <laughs> uh, uh, but we were talking about something about, um, yeah, uh, uh, kind of getting to be known for something, which is, and we haven't said the, the, the real dirty word yet, which is kind of craft in America you know and among craft or quasi craft artists that is it's this trap it's this pleasant trap to fall into like you know if you want to put your kids through college it's fantastic to be known for a specific thing but it also like there's a lot of people whose career just ends there simply because yeah you know, if you're if you're a bit more successful with it than I am. You know, I can think of a few artists who became known for something and not just kind of the academics embraced it, but the collectors really embraced it, you know, and like they have to choose between, you know, going into work and trying something new or making something that they know is going to sell for $60,000. It's pretty, you know, it, it, you get nailed down pretty fast and it's not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, in the great scheme of things, that's what a lot of artists do. And it really is what the crafts are kind of about and on like a kind of individual production level, you know, that, that kind of thing about the craft artist almost being like a monk, you know, that uh, the fabled Japanese ceramist that like at 70 years old produces the perfect cup, you know, because he's been doing it for 50 years. Uh, or 65 years, you know, since he was six, you know, and this idea of the craft person as uh, that particular thing, it has its place. I think it's a a completely valid way of doing things. And those are the people that are really going to make beautiful objects. Then it's maybe not as satisfying to curiosity as other approaches. uh, And that's kind of what I enjoy. Uh, And I think that's kind of what the contemporary art world should be set up to support is kind of this, this experimenting with language and visuals and uh, um, ways of seeing things. But it's not. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's that. There's that little detail. Yeah. Like all complex endeavors that are done for money it ends up presenting itself as something uh, that it, it maybe doesn't quite live up to but
0: that's humanity for you it's a tough balance because i mean in many ways like okay here my ego when i was a kid like you know in art school i remember like what reading art history books and in class and all this kind of stuff and then going like oh my god someday I want to be an example of a a movement or a style or whatever in Mm -hmm. an art history book. Like, that's what, that's my big life goal. And I'm not sure, maybe that'll still happen. Maybe after I'm dead, I don't know. But, you know, but it's one of those things like, there's that desire to be recognized that we all want to do. And and th- then that sort of style then goes into it because like he, to a certain extent, most of the artists that are in the sort of art history canon have come up with a thing. And now I'm, don't get me wrong. There are some random people I can think of that like they did this one thing that was just like earth shattering. And then, and everybody knows them. I mean, they're like I'm thinking like, uh, Duchamp, like everybody knows R. Mutt's urinal kind of thing. And then they probably couldn't name another Duchamp piece.
1: <laughs> mm, a large glass. woman descending staircase. Definitely one of my favorites. If you get the cramps to sing about one of your paintings, 50 years on, you're, you're there. Yeah, Mark Rothko. Fantastic stuff. But you know right away it's a Absolutely. Rothko. <laughs> no question. One nice thing about it is that being immediately recognized can open other doors. Like being somebody that's recognized is probably one of the things that gets me a lot of the university engagements that I have or the the workshops that I teach. So in a lot of ways, it, you know, the simple notoriety of it opens a lot of opportunities up as an artist. But yeah, um in uh, kind of in my thirties, I was like, ah, I have this thing. People know it. I should be set, and then nobody bought it. <laughs> you know, I would make these things and like, you know, sell one a year, uh, and so it, it was never um, it never turned into a viable kind of financial strategy. But I think, in terms of uh, just kind of opportunities and the ability to apply for things and the ability to get grants and stuff like that, it has been quite helpful.
0: Well, I was gonna say, like, to a certain extent, like. Even having a specialized technique that you have become we'll call it we'll say you are like the master of a technique like you become masterful in it and people want to learn not only it but sort of the things that surround it so like to a certain extent that that's even that has made you a more desirable person for workshops or visiting artists or something like that so it's, it's not necessarily like you come up with a unique style or a technique that's like unique to you and your vision kind of thing but that has has been instead of like it being a direct sales opportunity it's been a direct career opportunity because it's then allowed you to have you know grants and residencies and teaching positions and workshops that you probably would never have had had you not come up with that particular thing so Mm -hmm. like it i'm sure it has opened a lot of doors for you but the question then is is like is that enough for you or are you going to keep pushing things even farther?
1: I mean, I'm kind of only interested in it, in that it allows me to like try other things. And, you know, there's a few things that I'm kind of known for that succeeded. And there's an enormous number of things that never did. Uh, (laughs) Then I tried it, you know, if failure is your prime tool, uh, there's going to be a lot of things that that never turn into something that is readily accessible or even, or even successful. It just means that the the few that have, have been kind of far enough outside the normal ken that they become very attractive and, and look very special. It's kind of one of those things about uh, the separation of career and money. Um, like all of those, all of those opportunities have, have, uh, simply come from notoriety rather than from kind of financial success. And uh, uh, I think one of the other keys to, like, I've I've done a lot of, I think I've done like 15 or 16 residencies at this point, and I've done a, a lot of different university things. And one of the big keys, you know, there's, obviously there's a bunch of hard work you need to apply. You need to do like, especially when you're starting out, you need to do 10 or 12 residency applications every year. Uh, and you really need to make sure that you've got great images, you know, get the writing up. But the other thing that really helps you get residencies is having gotten residencies. Like, you know, having an institution look at your CV and be like, oh, those people had him and they did, and so did they. Uh, You must be fine. You know, it it becomes somewhat circular. Uh, And there have been several years where I don't, apply to anything people kind of call me up or I apply to one or two and I don't want to curse it <laughs> but um it's almost gotten to the point where people come looking for me rather than me having to do the other the other thing, which I suppose is kind of the normal course of things. But yeah uh, for for students starting out uh, and looking for residencies getting those first few will actually open a lot of doors.
0: I know. I wish somebody had told me that 20-some-odd years ago. I didn't realize just how important they were. But I also think they've become more important in the past 20 years. Like I think 20 years ago, they weren't as important. I don't think there were as many of them even for that matter. But whatever, that's my problem. So (laughs) You brought up – You brought up a thing about the word craft. Now, I've had the longstanding debate with people about this, and I want to hear sort of your perspective on this, like the word craft and or slash versus the word art. And then Mm -hmm. also I will even include the term fine art. Is there a difference?
1: Uh So this is something that I kind of like, consistently rethink uh, and there's a lot of different ways to think about it there's the the art and the craft market at least in the US are divorced they're they're very different economic models and the levels are very different in kind of like what would be expected for work uh, and uh, what is a reasonable amount of work to make uh, a reasonable amount to expect for the work. With with a with very few exceptions like Pete Volkas Dale Chihuly you never get to kind of the art star levels of income in craft and it kind of goes in waves and, and I'm not super interested in getting into that like discussion of the ghettoization of craft and you know like. Uh, The economic fallout, I think it's it's fairly obvious what the economic situation is for anybody that's involved in it. Um, You're not going to sell a mug for what you sell a painting for. But the kind of philosophical definitions and the kind of the weird ways we've come up with defining that tend to be a lot more interesting. And the way I currently think about it is craft is the making of beautiful objects. And art is the asking of questions, particularly in an academic setting. In practice, maybe not so much. And, you know, especially in the gallery world, not so much. Uh, it's more the promotion of a particular identity. And um, fine art, I kind of think, is anything that's made it into the books. And that may be, that may be a bit facetious and a bit easy uh, in terms of, it, you know, a bit more flippant, uh, than a real thought out definition of it. Cause I haven't, I haven't spent that much time thinking about the difference between art and, and fine art. But to me, craft and art are those two things. And I think there's a lot of crossover between them. Craft is literally like the craft of the thing that you're doing. Like how physically good are at it? Are you, how polished a result can you get? How kind of, technically inspired can you get because you know i mean like we were talking about the little japanese guy that makes the teacup for 60 years that 60 year teacup is a bit of a religious experience if you're tuned into it they're really like you know that's when you should be able to see those 60 years in the object you know and the guy's like you're not paying for this cup i made you're paying for my 10 years like you want to see those 10 years in the cup like you know it wants to say that. And uh, like the 75-year-old master Japanese potter, when you have his cup, you should see that. And I think a lot of times you do. Uh, and that's, that's a very kind of like, it's something kind of fundamental about humans, about the way that we kind of value things and, and value objects. Whereas art is, at least for me, much more this idea of kind of the exploration of things uh, and how you look at things how you see that, And, and I think also as a sculptor primarily, it's what I like to think of myself as I like to think of myself as a sculptor, and uh, not a, not a glass artist, though. I love glass. There's nothing wrong with it. It's very much a physical thing. You know, it's like, how do these ideas that you have and your sense of self, you know, when you start actually making things, how does that interact with space and physicality and like, there's that dividing line between your mind and your body and like sculpture is should be kind of bridging that all the time like your thoughts in physical space um and and reverse like your physical space in your thoughts and that's kind of an interesting thing for me because it you know we all get a certain amount of joy from the things that we do both from kind of like the physicality of our body or like the objects that we surround ourselves with, you know, everybody nests and builds this house of objects that they like around themselves. And there's a reason for that. Like there's, there's something in there where there's a, a crossover between like the things that are physically required and the things that are emotionally nourishing that I think like, at least to me, like that's the thing that I want to explore. Like, why do things make us happy? Why, um, why are there certain things that are beautiful to everybody? Like, why does everybody like a rainbow or a nice set of mountains? You know, a, and to a certain extent, I mean, I think I think some of that is a physical response that we're born with as part of the species. You know, I don't know if parrots find the same things beautiful as we do, but uh, uh, those are kind of the like the art questions that I think about, but the a lot of the things that I do are somewhat crafty, if not outright crafty. I'm not a big one for finishes, like I don't make very polished stuff. Uh, I'm much more about like, the, the things that really excite me and the things that keep me making things are when I get surprised in the studio, when something happens that transforms in a way that I didn't expect. I find that very exciting and I will, I will happily continue to pursue being surprised as a, as an artistic practice. But I also have, like, very firm ideas about the right way to do things, which are usually obstacles. You know, like, my father was a big one for, like, there's a specific way to make this. This is the way that it's been made for hundreds of years. Like, he, in his art practice, like, he tried consciously not to do anything that was done after 1400. Like, it was... They were the best at it in the Renaissance and, you know, and it worked for him, you know, I mean, because everything that he was doing was part of this kind of tradition. You know, I mean, he was casting bronze. Uh, and apart from the invention of the welder, like that really hadn't changed. And some of the best ones were still the Romans, you know, unless, until you get to like Bernie. Anyway, I think we've gone a little far afield <clears throat> there.
0: You brought up your father in that. And i it's funny my father is a priest as i mentioned he's also an artist and he hated the arts world still does i shouldn't talk about him in the past tense he still does talk, hate the art world um and he actually went to school for art uh, painting and and printmaking and all this and he he was just like fuck it it's it's too much and this is back we're talking 1964. And he's like, it's too much about like cult of personality and popularity and all this. Because it's like basically all the things that we still talk about now mm-hmm. that he hated way back when. And I'm just sort of like, oh, God. But the point being is, is that my father, he's a priest. And so he's all about the community and educating and helping and all this. Like the, the priest, the religion part of it, let's disregard that part. He he supported the community and did all that kind of stuff, and and your father in many ways did a very similar thing. Being a teacher, I often see priests and teachers being very similar, mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering sort of like the the nature of like how much your 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 father being a uh, in the sort of building of the community kind of a, of an industry has then influenced you in your thought pattern about how your career has then built out as well, because like. In my mind, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, if your father was a banker, you would probably be more interested in selling work. But because your father mm. was an academic, you have this good, strong ethos of like you know the purity of the medium and the purity of creation and i'm of the same way like i'm i'm very much of like i love teaching i love sharing i love you know expressing ideas and all this kind of stuff and i'm less interested in the sales part of it and the money part of it even though of course i would like that to happen but like that's not my focus and i'm wondering sort of how much those generational experiences sort of influence it seemingly both of us
1: Mm -hmm. i think it's an excellent. That's an excellent kind of starting point and place. Uh, the only thing I like, the only thing I would say is it's, it's probably more advertising executive than banker who's interested in selling work. But that was that's a little like you know. Well, we could say gallerist as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there are various levels of hell. Bankers are on one, and I think ad execs are a little bit lower. I'm not gonna like. Gallerists usually mean well. The ones that don't are incredibly problematic, but most of them mean well.
0: The best of intentions are paved. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. The road to hell. Yes.
1: My father was, in in certain ways, he was a very kind of moral person. Like he believed in certain things uh, and in certain virtues, and he was never willing to kind of. Not necessarily Like like he could compromise, but he wouldn't, he would never back down from them. Um, like, these are the ways you do things and it became more and more kind of set in these things as he got older and very few of them were hard to argue with. Uh, you know, he was a very bright guy and he had kind of a, a value system that most of us would agree on. And he was a very hard worker and he was very good at what he did, you know, and he kind of knew these things about, and he taught, you know, 18 and 19-year-olds, how to identify form uh, as opposed to shape for 40 years. So he was pretty good at it. And that was certainly kind of like it launched me into art uh, and gave me a set of things that were very useful when I was thinking about design or when I was learning how to make things and make things well. And then later along, later in the, you know, kind of the evolution when I stopped being so practical and started being a bit more artistic and emotional about things, they all became obstacles that I kind of had to identify and be like, this, you know, this worked for my father and I love him, but I make a different kind of art and it's not, it doesn't necessarily work for me. and. I mean, I still like, that's one thing about growing up as an artist with somebody who's taught art for 50 years is that you hear them in the back of your head constantly. Um, <laughs> like, ding, there's still an enormous amount of value in all of those things. But in the end, he ended up making a kind of art that I can't make. I'm not good enough <laughs> at the things that he was good enough at to, to work that way. And I also like, you know, and I've spent chunks of my life trying and it never kind of brought me back to working hard and to enjoying what I did, much like trying to make art that satisfies the voice of my dad in my head is a lot like trying to make art that I want to sell. It's something that I can see the roadmap, but... I don't really have the drive to get there, uh, and in the end, it's a half-hearted attempt.
0: I, I totally understand. Yeah. My, my father, he also paints. Um, he, at this point, he paints 13th and 14th century Russian Byzantine icons as a hobby, and so like my dad and I always have this back and forth. He 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 does very virtuous and pure things i mean religious you know basically was so like you know pure you know doves and crosses and sunshines and you know i mean beautiful things and then me i do like naked women and like you know basically like mm-hmm. the antithesis of everything that he did he valued and he, he thought was sort of true and i'm wondering if like did your father had that influence of like i find that oftentimes like children of artists or children of creative people either follow in their, their footsteps or are the antithesis of whatever they were.
1: Mm. I mean, I definitely up through my mid thirties was very much kind of following what he did. You know, he was kind of an erudite guy that, you know, liked a good dick joke. So it was, it was kind of something that was very easy to, It's very easy to to, uh, feel good about pursuing. And I've really only grown away from it uh, because I find that it's not how I do my best work. But like, we have a house in Seattle uh, that's very nice. It's this old corner store and you have a studio underneath and an apartment up above. And the only way that we're able to afford it at all is that it belonged to a friend of ours, and it had been abandoned for years. So I did all of the renovation, and now kind of in return, we live there for a very reduced rent. And if I'm doing renovation, I'm doing my father's thing all the time because there is a right fucking way to put in baseboard molding. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it'll not – yeah.
0: I know this voice very well. Continue. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, he like uh, you know he did bronze casting, and um, he would not allow anybody to do any of the processes apart from him. Like he would go to the foundry and make the molds and do the pour, and then do all of the grinding, all the things you would ordinarily pay other people to do. He would do it in every step because he could not trust people to be as perfectionist as he was along the way, and that was kind of the person that he was.
0: Well, oftentimes those people. I mean, they're just being paid to do it. They don't care about mm. the 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 quality of it. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are of course those people that do, but as a general whole, like when you pay somebody else to do something, they're never going to invest that extra whatever, that extra level of quality that, of course, an artist is going to put in that because generally we're not paid for our our time or effort and our perfection. Mm, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, he definitely wasn't wrong about
0: that. But I also think that the reason
1: that he could do that was because he had a university teaching position that financed him doing whatever he thought was best in the studio. And it got, it got worse and worse as he got older in terms of just like, he just wouldn't let go of projects. Like it's not right yet. It's not done.
0: Or better and better. Don't judge.
1: No, I mean, well, uh, you know, there was a certain decline when things got too precious and he just, he would just work them to death and they would, they would start to get a little stiff instead of flowy. But, you know, he could, he could afford to take as long as he wanted. You know, he would have projects that would last five years, seven years. And then, you know, they were relatively big projects, monuments, things like that. But most of us would have looked at it year three and thought it was done. Uh, <laughs> But that just wasn't the way, he, the way he worked. And he was lucky enough to have a, a position that let him do that. Uh, like, I could not indulge in those things. Like, there are certain things like, I need something done. I can't do the research to find out how to do it better than the people that I would pay to do it, which was kind of his, you know, I just don't have the time. I can't afford to spend that time really communing with the object. Um, which is another part of craft, I think. There's there's a lot of kind of object lust. You know, it, there's, just, there's just like fetishization of, of everything that you're doing. You know, if you're, yeah, if you're going to do that thing every day for 20 years, definitely you know, getting something back from it that's not entirely wholesome.
0: Well, I mean, there's a whole fetishization about objects. Period. Like, I mean, I'm mm. the older I'm getting. I mean, I always had an appreciation for quality objects, and but not even quality objects and designs, but quality of like memories or experiences with them as well. Like, it, it, I, I've said this before, but like, my parents are getting older. And we were looking through their art collection that they have. It's not some great art collection, but they have a collection of art, and they keep saying, "Oh, what do you are do you want? Are you going to keep this piece when we like downsize and you know need to get rid of this?" And I'm like, "No, I have no connection to that." And so like the like I fetishize certain things that I have connections with, in a way that they have a different connection. Like they remember the experience of going to a gallery and purchasing this piece of art that I wasn't present for. So I have no connection to that that piece, but they have it. And, and then there are other pieces that I have these amazing connections to that they have no connection to whatsoever. And it's very fascinating, that very subjective relationship that we all have with objects themselves. And in contrast to all of that, my wife just doesn't like objects period. Like mm-hmm. she, if she had it her way, our entire house would be like a Zen Buddhist minimalist place. Mm-hmm. Which in its own way values objects even more intensely. It does. I, I mean, it, because the few objects that are there it, just like any yeah. amount of minimalism, the less, the less things that are there, the more important each thing has. I get all that.
1: But kind of the thing that I was thinking about was um, when you're making art, do you fetishize, like, the processes and the tools that you're using? And this little, you know, and and it's, like, I think it's definitely that way for craft people. You know, like, everybody's got their favorite hammer, and it's this, you know, lovingly kept little thing. And every time they get to use it, they're like, ah, this is great to get to use the hammer again. I certainly I have do things like that, and and yeah, I absolutely also do. just kind of like the processes and the craft of it, uh, and and that certain amount of enjoyment that you take from just knowing how to make something and making and doing it relatively well or as well as you can, I think is a big part of the the appeal to craft, and I think it's also something that's kind of universal to humans. Like we, I got off on a tangent a little bit about like human ideas of beauty and how some of them are pretty universal. I think there's also this kind of like this attraction of activity that, that, uh, finds its greatest expression in craft, you know, like this repetition of things and getting slightly better at it every single time, uh, as a really satisfying way to spend your day is a very kind of craft idea. And it's, is kind of fundamental to it's, you know, and, it's also something that, like, people that are outside the art world apply to art in general constantly. You know, like, like a painting, regardless of, or, or a mixed media piece, or a performance, or a video piece, regardless of what kind of big questions it asks or how it maybe changes the way that that people think about things. Inevitably, there's a bunch of people that are like, hey, "You could have done that better right there," and the editing's, you know. He really doesn't have the brush strokes of, you know, and, and of course you went into those with your professors as well. But it like, um, and that I think is a big part of the art craft discussion is that like those very kind of crafty things cannot really be divorced from art uh, because we're still always judging it as a beautiful object in addition to whatever else it's doing. Like I don't really need to see those things divorced. Like I mean, I think there's certainly plenty of things like the work of Bruce Nauman, like has basically zero craftiness in it. It's still really important. It's still really, you know, like looking at those things and trying to understand them and like understand them in relationship to yourself. Uh, and, and, you know, and they're very kind of self mirroring things. They're all about art practice. Um, at least like the ones that I'm thinking of, you know, it, They're they're, they're very, very important. They don't use craft. But being able to like not care whether or not it uses craft or like being able to talk about the craft without insulting the art and vice versa, uh, I think is really important. I think this this kind of like division where like we have to judge something based on one thing or the other uh, and whether or not it falls too far into one camp, well, then it can't be the other thing. It's false. It's it's a it's a dichotomy that doesn't need to exist. I'm essentially a craft maker who has aspirations uh, about doing other things and spends a lot of time thinking about other things uh, and how much that that like gets translated into the work. I hope it gets translated into work. I don't know that it necessarily does, but it certainly gets translated into the way that I think about life and the way that like I think about myself. I think we we all ride that line. I hope so. I mean, that's like it's part of the whole thing, and that's like the physicality of sculpture. That's the like, you know, where's that line between the idea and the object, mm-hmm. and how do we make objects that cross that line?
0: Indeed. All right. I've got one last question. Totally superficial question, but your name is actually on your website as C Matthew. So. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the C? The C is
1: Carl, which was my grandfather's name. And one of the little eccentricities of my family is that my father put the honorary names first instead of the middle name. So, you know, usually a lot of times you get names for an ancestor as your middle name. He made them first because if you're going to honor somebody, it should be your first name. So both me and my brother have first initials that we never use that are essentially our middle names to just first. So yeah, the C is my grandfather on my mother's side and my mother's father and my brother is named after my father, Merlin Merlin. So. All right. Lovely.
0: Any last topics you want to talk about?
1: No. I mean, the only thing I would say is travel more to anybody that's not doing it. I mean, if no, if for no other reason than for the food, travel more. But really, it's it's probably the single greatest educational investment you can make, I think. It's going other places and listening to other people.
0: Fabulous. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Matthew. And uh, have a good day.
0: Thank you for listening all the way to the end of our conversation. And we thank you for your support in helping to build a stronger arts and creative community. I would appreciate it if you would also share this with your friends, family, co-workers, anybody with some interest in the arts, because building that networking community is at the core of our mission. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. back.